forgot to mention, if you see a strange man with a camera after the service, he is from our church, uh, and so you can talk with him. He's nice. Uh, we're trying to do a little video, so be friendly to him. We're going to roll up our sleeves and get right to work. Uh, today, we will spell out the first word of our new series, Big Words for Living. Ten words from the book of Romans, trying to uh, convince us that it is only, only biblical beliefs that will result in biblical living. Only through biblical beliefs, beliefs can we have biblical living over the long haul. So accordingly, we'll be looking at foundational beliefs from God's word that we often ignore. We often ignore because God stuffs them into these big, right, loaded and often complex words. So, they're big, they're sometimes complex. I'm going to encourage you to have your cell phones, smartphones, iPhones, satellite phones, pay-as-you-go phones, and rotary phones. Ready, alright, ready to text in. If you have any questions regarding today's word or the Bible passage, you can text this number right here and I'll, I'll have it shown throughout the PowerPoint. You can look at it and say, hey, I got a question. Again, it's rare that a pastor encourages you to use your cell phone during the service. So uh, just enjoy that uh, over the next few weeks while this lasts. After the final worship song, what we'll do then is spend 10 minutes answering uh, as many relevant questions as possible. So please text as many relevant questions as possible about the Word or the Bible passage. Please, no questions concerning whether Amanda Hug and Kiss is still going to our church. Right? Remember Amanda to Hug and Kiss? Come on. Just keep saying it to yourself slowly. It's a good old joke. Amanda to Hug and Kiss. Alright. Terrible. Alright. Today's big word this morning is law. Alright, Law. So open, if you would, to Romans 7, verses 7 through 14. Romans 7, 7 through 14. Page 808, if you're using the Bibles we provided for you. Paul's letter to the Romans will be our guide during this series. Uh, and what you'll see, which is one of the difficulties about preaching this, is that a lot of the words are going to run together. So we're going to do a word each week, but some of the words kind of blend together in the same passage. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. That's going to happen this morning with law and sin. So we'll touch on sin a little this morning as well. Romans 7, 7 through 14, the Apostle Paul speaks. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness or jealousy. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. 
and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Let's pray. Lord, this is a dense passage and a, and a big word. Spirit, I really just ask for your help this morning. Help, uh, help me as uh, I speak, Lord, may they be your words. Father, help all of us if we have questions. Lord, ask good questions. Text them in, Lord. Father, I pray that we would use our minds right now to love you, to really think about what this means and how it applies to our life. Please help us by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the sermon afforded me the opportunity to entertain myself, which uh, I try to aim for in most sermons, uh, entertain myself. I laugh, right? I laugh and you stare, right? It's a, it's a give and take relationship, right? Symbiotic. When living in the United States, uh, I had an opportunity to live in a number of the di- different states and move around. And when I arrived in each state in my adult life, I tried to make it a habit to look up laws about from each state. All right, and not legislative laws, not, uh, you know, uh, the laws of the road, but rather really, really old laws still on the books. You may have seen some of these before. My most recent state of residence was the state of Florida, and I want to share with you my five favorite laws that I discovered from the state of Florida. Are you ready for these? Here we go. Number one, the state constitution in Florida allows for freedom of speech, a trial by jury, and pregnant pigs to not be confined in cages. All right? Big law and important. Pig industry is big. Second one, the doors of all public buildings must open outwards. Yeah, I, I just found that one kind of fascinating. Like, why? I kind of wonder if it's for, like, the dramatic exit. You know, like in the courtroom dramas, you know, if you ever watch a, a movie, and they have a verdict, and someone opens the door. Innocent! And maybe that's why they did it. And the third one. A special law prohibits unmarried woman, women from parachuting on Sunday. Uh, or she shall risk arrest, fine, or in some cases, jailing. I found this one interesting uh, because I'm wondering, is Sunday just that lonely of a day? You know, I mean, that people would go parachuting, right? Uh, And I just want to let you know, if you're single here this morning, that uh, you are with family here at Sunrise. uh, So please don't go parachuting after the service. We love you and want to care for you. Uh, Here's another one. If an elephant is tied to a parking meter, the parking fee... Uh, has to be paid just as if it was a vehicle. All right, so... um, (laughs) uh, Finally, uh, last one. Men may not be seen publicly in any kind of strapless gown. All right, so uh, if you're going to go to Florida, choose another gown, men, if you choose to cross-dress in this case. Now, these are some archaic laws that most of which are irrelevant, maybe except for the strapless gown one. 
I think I support that. But I realize that I have a tall task this morning to try to convince you that God's law, while archaic, is very relevant still to your lives. So let's get right into this. I want to define God's law for us as Paul uses it. Paul uses it in two senses, in two ways. So I'm going to give us two definitions. Definition number one, the law is written commandments given by God for his people to fulfill as a response to his covenant or to his promise of unfailing love and eternal faithfulness. So they're given to fulfill as a response to what God has done, his, his, his promise. Definition number two, the law is also used in this way by Paul. It is in by Jews of Paul's time. The law is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy called by Jews the Torah. Or the Torah, which means uh, the law or uh, the commandments or instruction. Now, but if you were Greek and not Jewish, or you were just a, a Gentile, you would call it the Pentateuch, which literally means, you know, Penta five, five scrolls. All right? So, the law is used in this way as well. It's used to categorize this group of books in the Old Testament. That's why, upon having meeting, meeting Jesus for the first time, uh, Philip runs off to his buddy Nate and says, Hey, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Alright, he's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. You'll see this a lot. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Those are our definitions. Now, how is the law relevant to your life? I want to give you two ways beyond sort of the obvious. The obvious is that the Judeo-Christian laws from the Old Testament have been very influential in Western societies, in Western governments. But beyond that, I'll give you two other ways. They're relevant to most of us who became Christians in an early age. Right? Unlike some of us, if this describes you, unlike some of us, you had the good sense right, of obeying rules and aiming to please your parents and others and authority. Right? Things went well for you as a result. This often translated itself in church or in a Sunday school setting into actually delighting in God's law. Right? Knowing it. You love to memorize it. You knew it. You began to obey it. And you began to benefit by it. This is how the Apostle Paul's journey to Jesus began. Later in this chapter we're reading in chapter 7, he says he genuinely delighted in knowing and trying to carry out God's law. Genuinely enjoyed it and delighted in carrying it out. More on this in a moment. But the law also matters because you don't want to be used. Because friends, if you don't use God's law how God means it to be used, then the law will use you. But let's start at the beginning. We're going to start at the starting line, and that is that the law is good. God created the law, the law is good. The passage we're reading from this morning, Romans 7, 
centers around two questions in which Paul is going out of his way to affirm this truth that the law is good. Alright? Read with me in verse 7, first of all, these two questions. First one's in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? No, by no means. The law is not sin. Alright? Then in verse 13, he asks this other question. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Rather, the law is good and doesn't bring about death, he goes on to say. Alright, the law is good. Surrounding these questions, we have other affirmations. The law is holy, the the law is righteous, the law is good. Verse 12, we also see in verse 14, the law is spiritual, right? Of God's spirit. I'm just trying to make the point to us that the law is a very good thing. Because it reflects God's character, right? It proceeds from God, so it reflects His character. And so, it's holy, it's righteous, it's spiritual, and it's good. Not only good from Him, but good for us. Right? Psalm 119.45, a great psalm on the goodness of God's law, says this, I shall walk in a wide place. For I have sought your precepts. If you have an NIV or other translation, it says, I shall walk in liberty. But I kind of like this more literal translation, I shall walk in a wide place. It gives you this kind of image, this visual of by actually obeying the commandments, I have all this freedom. I actually walk in an unrestricted wide place. Which is a paradox, right? You'd think, people say all the time, Man, God's law is it's restrictive. The law, right? It's like, ugh, get me away from the law, right? I want to rebel. I want to get out of it. I want to untie the shackles. But the law can be something that gives freedom, right? If you ever follow the law in a way that's a response to God, more on that later, it can be and can feel so right. There's a rightness about it. That you've gotten caught up in God's will and it empowers you to live for Him. Hopefully you've had this experience in your life or have tasted it. Now, before we can get talk any further about the law and the way Paul uses it here in Romans 7, I've got to talk about another term for you. And that is the term uh, covenant. Now, the law was an opportunity for God's people to respond to His commitment of love and faithfulness. Not to mention His actions of love and faithfulness. But this commitment was called a covenant. A covenant is a binding and solemn commitment between two usually unequal parties, can be equal, usually unequal parties, in which one usually has the power and commits then to protect and save the other, right? And in turn, the other commits to obey and pledge loyalty to the one in power. It's a covenant. And there are three major covenants between God and His people in the Old Testament. The first major one is the Abrahamic covenant. God promises to be God for a nation that He will bring forth offspring from. He'll bring offspring from this guy named Abraham. He's going to bring forth a nation that he's going to be God of. 
It's going to be through this guy named Abraham. The next covenant would spell out the specifics of why it's so darn good to be God's people. It's so darn great to be God's people. You got a promised land. You get increased fertility in land and in childbearing. You get long life. It's wonderful. Right? That's what the next covenant will spell out. It will also spell out how he wants his people then, based on these blessings, to respond with obedience and with loyalty to him. This is called the Mosaic Covenant. And the key word in all of this, and all the stuff about covenant and law, is respond. All of God's laws written down by Moses in these books were intended to be a response to his love and faithfulness, not intended to attain or even earn his love or faithfulness. So God loved them so much. He worked in their life. He acted in their life. He showed them how much he loved them. The response was supposed to be a response of love. I want to obey you. I want to follow you. I want to pledge my loyalty to you. Not, I must do this because God says so and it will earn points with them. I want to give you two examples of how the law is a response to covenant. This is important for us to understand when we understand law. When the Israelites were about to enter their promised land, they were wandering for so many years, a land to finally call home. God tells them first thing they ought to do when they get to this new land is to take some of the fruit growing in the soil, right? Growing from the trees and to offer, to give it to the priest to make an offering, a sacrifice before the Lord of his goodness. Because he brought them into this land and gave it to them. So in doing so, here's what, here's what God says. You shall make a response before the Lord your God. The wording is very intentional here. The act of obedience. The first thing we're supposed to do in response to God's goodness and bringing this to this land and giving it to them was respond with an act of obedience. That's what the law was supposed to be. A response to God's commitment. Here's another one. It happens even when the God issues the Ten Commandments, right? Remember the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston? Breaking things, you know, Moses, 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 right? You remember the Pharaoh? It was, great. it was a great movie. It was like four hours long. But uh, wonderful, wonderful movie. Uh, you remember some of these commandments, hopefully. You shall, right, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship graven images, not take the Lord's name in vain, honor the, my, my, thy mother and father. You know, you shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. The list goes on. Well, right before God gives the Ten Commandments, an often neglected and overlooked verse, Exodus 20, verse 2, right before it starts, Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice, God is showing his faithfulness, his commitment to his people first. Based on that, Here's how I'm asking you to respond in faithfulness through these Ten Commandments. Does that make sense? I have done something for you. I have loved you. And I am God. Respond by obeying my law. So this is what God asked them to do. But, unfortunately, here's our second part. Something happened along the way. Something happened on the way to the finish line of obedience. Actually, two things happened. First, 
people found out that they didn't want to trust a God to run their lives. Right? So they tried to obey the law without trusting the God who gave it. Following the law then became a means of appeasing God and earning back his favor. Constantly. Trying to earn it back. Trying to earn it back. What they found was they couldn't do it. On their own strength, they couldn't follow the law. They might succeed one, two, three times. Maybe at parties, they were kind to people. And in front of others, they made sacrifices. Good times. But ultimately, though they wanted to follow it, they would fail. They would fail. Friends, they ran into the same problem that the Apostle Paul encounters and describes here in Romans 7. And that problem is sin. Sin actually uses the law like a bridge to get to us and then kill us. That's what sin does. And that's how it takes advantage of the law. Read with me in verse 11. If you still have your Bibles open, keep them open. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through that commandment, killed me. Sin uses the law to get to us like a bridge and kill us. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's read all of verses 7 through 9. Read those with me if you would. Because this is where we're going to land for a little while. What shall we say then? The law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. When I was a kid, uh, I lived at the end of the street that backed up to a dense kind of forest. All right, you know, one of these cul-de-sacs and whatever. And it was, it was a perfect place at night for me and my friends to play one of our favorite games, which was uh, Flashlight Tag. All right, we love playing Flashlight Tag. Do you remember, everyone ever played this game, Flashlight Tag? Probably, okay, a few of us. If you're here and came in, you don't play it much because if you see kids getting into flashlights, it's like, that's our emergency hurricane kit, please no. Right, so, but where we were, you know, it wasn't that big a deal, right? Occasional tornado. So, The idea was you ran around the woods and if you shone your flashlight on someone, you shined your flashlight on someone, they were either out, you know, the game, or they had to freeze until, you know, a given period of time or until someone on their team re-tagged them. But the great thing about this, as opposed to regular tag, is having a flashlight, you know, also served to light your path, right? which helped you prevent, prevent you from stumbling, right? Over roots and trees in the way and odd things. When flashing ones light around and trying to tag people, though, uh, every once in a while, I would get totally spooked out. Because occasionally, you'd shine your light on something you thought was a person, something moving, but you're like, oh, Jimmy! No, that's not Jimmy. Right? Do something like that. And, and, it, and it's just, something's rustling. It's this weird amorphous shape, you know. And 
I flash, you know, I turn away and then flash back and it's not there. This often would happen to my friends and I, and it totally freaked us out. Right? And that's why, you know, uh, when I saw this movie, The Blair Witch Project, years ago, I shouldn't have watched it. It still haunts me. It's all about like flashlights and cameras and woods, and it was, hey, freaked me out. Anyhow, um, disturbing. God's law is like this flashlight. Psalm 119.105 says this. Your word, this can also be translated your law, your law is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's law lights our way, prevents us from stumbling. But in using it, you will also end up exposing something ugly and frightful. That is sin. Right? Had you not shined the law on it, it would still be there. That weird amorphous shape. That frightening thing, sin. Whether you like it or not, it's still there. For instance, as Paul points out, we want, we always want what other people have. Alright, with or without a law, we have this desire within us to have what others have. Alright? But because the law says, as Paul points out, you shall not covet, we see the truth. We get evidence of what's inside us. This desire. That makes sense? So, Paul says, apart from the law, verse 8, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Does this mean that without the flashlight, sin doesn't exist? No. I read a lot on this this week and I'm convinced that Paul is basically saying this. Without the law, my personal experience would have been to go on my merry way, to live. Right? Sin would be dead to me. I wouldn't, you know, when someone says, that person's dead to me. That person's literally not dead, right? They don't cease to exist. But in their experience, it's as if they don't exist. And that's what Paul's saying here. Without the law, it's as if sin didn't exist and I kept on living. Does that make sense? It's like me. I would have been fine not to see the weird, non-human shape 30 yards away with my flashlight that would continue to haunt my dreams for a week. Right? That would have been fine for me not to know that. I would have kept on living. But when it comes to sin, it's like asking these two questions. It's like asking, do you want to know what's really there? Versus, do you want to know what's really there if it's going to kill you? Right? There are a lot of things in our life that if we don't know about them, we don't care. We even say it. I right? say, oh, don't tell me. I don't want to know. But what if it's going to kill you? What if it's going to change your destiny? Eternally. And I hope you'd want to know. And that is the wonderful thing about the law. The law matters because it is the only way we can see our sin. And if we can diagnose the disease, we can turn to God for the prognosis and for healing. Does that make sense? I found out something fascinating this week in studying. I found out that God's people chose to minimize what the law, what the flashlight showed them. 
Instead of acknowledging how frightful their sin was, God's people, right, the Israelites, started to adjust their beliefs to fit their experience. From the time of the last prophets in the Old Testament around the 5th century B.C. to the time Jesus came, it's called the intertestamental period. So you think about 400, 500 years. It's interesting that uh, most rabbis, most leaders of synagogues, leaders of the Israelites, adjusted their beliefs by saying it's good enough that someone earnestly strives to regulate his or her life by the law. Do you hear that? There's a change. They noticed they couldn't follow the law. So you know what? It's good enough you just try to do it. You strive as hard as you can and when you, you, you fall down, you get back up and you try again. I'm summarizing all the study I read, but that's basically what happened in these centuries. Of course, God's law never says, as long as you try. It says, no, I'm holy. Obey. Now, I found this so fascinating because when it comes to God's law, salvation, when it comes to salvation history, it repeats itself in this continual loop. Right? We can relate to this, what I've just kind of described. Striving to earn God's favor, favor through obedience because we don't want to trust God and hand over control to Him. We don't want to trust God. We'd rather just, let's just, let me just do your law. And we find out that doesn't work. Do the best you can. Try to live a pretty good life. And I think God will honor that. It's fascinating to me how this was the history of God's people and following the law. And this is our history, isn't it? I don't know where you're at with that. But we need a solution between inability on the one hand, our total inability, and trying to lower an immovable standard, which is God's law. Right? And that's where part three comes in here. The finish line. The new covenant. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law where we couldn't. He's the only one then who could sort of tag in and endure the cross and all the curses of the covenant that we deserve for failing to live up to our end. The new covenant is basically God sending Jesus to die for us and he asks us to respond by trusting him. And in trusting him, we can obey him. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to usher in this new covenant. And listen to what the Holy Spirit does. Hebrews 8, 6-12 says this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates or comes between is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless or had worked, had been perfect, there would not have been an occasion to look for another covenant. Next slide. For he finds fault with them when he says, here's the important passage here, this is quoting Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Mosaic covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Part for our purposes, I really want to focus on is verse 10. I will put my law into their minds. I will write my laws onto their hearts. Once we, what we were once powerless to do, the Holy Spirit enabled us to do by writing it on our hearts, and that is live God's law. God, in a sense, helps us fulfill all the covenants because we're able now to show our faith by responding in obedience to the law. This is such a great paradox, right? By trying to do all of God's law, we'll fail. We'll fall on our face and fail. But if we use God's law to see our failure and look to Jesus for help, we do God's law. And it's awesome. It's Christianity, baby. It's a paradox. Doesn't seem to make sense, but in actuality, it works. I want to conclude by briefly examining why this matters for living. Two points. One, did you notice a common theme when it comes to God's law? It is used, it's constantly used. It's used by God in His covenant to allow His people to show their faith or their loyalty. It's used by sin as a bridge from our heart to our actions. Right? And it's used by people. It's used by us. Either mistakenly to try to earn back God's favor or rightly used to reveal sin. Here's my message for you this morning. Use God's law or else it will use you. Use God's law to reveal your total inability so that having been forgiven and set free from the penalty of sin, you may respond by delighting in and living God's law. Use the Ten Commandments to grow in Christ. I'm going to put online with the sermon later today a version of Martin Luther's Shorter Catechism. And I know when I say catechism, that sounds unreadable. But it's not. Really, it's just the Ten Commandments. And under each question, how you may have violated each one. Some questions on how you may have violated each one. And that hurts. It hurts to see your sin as sinful beyond measure, as Paul says. But that's just a temporary paper cut to the glory and to the grace that God wants to give us. The glory of His grace is forgiveness. So use God's law or else it'll use you. It will use you to make you work only to fail. Or it will use you as the holy immovable standard against which you'll be judged if you think that God will accept you if you just try your best. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your law. God, I pray that we would use your law 
so that it wouldn't use us. So that sin wouldn't come across and kill us through the law. That we would use it daily to expose amazingly, paradoxically, how we can't follow it. So that we might turn to the great healer, to Jesus, for forgiveness and for saving. And by doing so, in this new covenant, by the Holy Spirit, we'll be able to actually begin to follow your law. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.